I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. No one wakes up a horrible person. No one is born a horrible person. It's something that sort of that takes hold over time. I do try very hard to think about that stuff because you can feel it. The Haywood family are truly rotten. No, I don't mean my Haywood family. I'm talking about the characters in Tom Hindle's new whodunit, Murder on Lake Garda. We meet the illustrious Haywood family on a private island in the midst of a wedding between Lawrence and his Italian influencer fiance, Ava. As the ceremony begins, a blood-curdling scream brings proceedings to a halt. Someone has been murdered. With all the wedding guests trapped as they wait for the police, old secrets come to light, family rivalries threaten to bubble over, and everyone is desperate to know who the killer is and whether they will strike again. With this third book, Tom Hindle has really cemented his name in the genre. I am delighted to say that he's my guest today. Chapter 1, A Beautiful Place for a Murder. Lake Garda is a gorgeous, crystal-clear lake in the north of Italy, the largest lake in the country, a favourite destination for tourists and a place of serene beauty. So, obviously, it's the perfect place for a murder. I have to say, it was strange to share a surname with so many characters in a novel. And while my own family is quite different, it did make me think about the nature of the Haywood family. I was curious to know how Tom came to place his novel and the rich, entitled Haywoods at Lake Garda. Tom says that it was simple. He went there and thought, you know, this really would be a great place to set a book. It absolutely is what happened. Yeah, I um. So it's a habit I've developed since starting to write these these books. Is whenever I'm anywhere vaguely interesting now, I I find myself looking around and thinking, what would a murder mystery look like here? Would it be Would it be possible? Would it be interesting? And yet yeah, we were, my wife and I were on holiday. We were in Lake Garda. We were in an amazing castle uh, beside the lake and we climbed to the top of there was like a watchtower that you could climb up and you got this amazing view of of the lake in the background and the architecture of the castle and I looked down and I saw this incredible wedding happening in one of the courtyards of the castle and as I as I do now I looked down and I thought God, if someone was murdered right there, that would just be the best opening to a murder mystery. And I actually took a picture of it on my phone. So I took a picture making sure to capture like, you know, the wedding and, and the castle walls and the lake behind it. And yeah, because we were on top of this this tower, I could get everything. It was I was quite I was pleased with the picture actually. But anyway, I got home and I sent that picture to my agent and to my editor and I said, right pitch for my next book you're at this wedding and this person is murdered i won't say who because i don't know how spoilery we want to get but uh, i said yeah this person is murdered what do you reckon and they both replied saying yeah go and go and write that please so it was it was as simple as that i'm afraid i mean it's amazing isn't it because i often find myself in beautiful places thinking you know what this would be awesome if something terrible happened because we are conditioned to see beauty and and writers are conditioned i think often to see the opposite uh, especially crime writers or or writers of murder mysteries 
but you're right. You set this up. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> let's not do spoilers, but it is called Murder on Lake Harder, right? Yep. So I, yep. I think the clue is is literally in the title to this. But a, a location that is so stunningly beautiful, mm -hmm. and we can see it in our minds because we've all seen images of Lake Harder, or people may have been there, but we've all seen it. We know what it looks like. And for you to take what is the most joyous of occasions, which is um, <laughs> the joining matrimony of two of two young lovers, and essentially creating a bloodbath is great because that's not what's supposed to happen. We get into this really quickly. There is this, in the first few chapters, there is this echoing refrain of this horrific scream that occurs. And then we flash back to several days, you know, before the wedding. And, you know, at some point we're going to work our way back up to it. We've probably got an understanding as to who does die, but then yeah. it becomes a mystery as to why, you know, why, why has this happened? I wanted to jump into the family. I mean, I, I share a name with the family um, behind this, which was something of a shock because it is not the most usual of names. Usually people spell it completely <laughs> differently to the way that you have. So that was a That was a shock. But this family, I really, really got into them because as I said to you in my notes, often writers fall into a particular trap, which is they have a great idea for a denouement or a this is how it happened and why. And that often comes at the expense of interesting characters and backstory. And yours doesn't. This family, the Haywood family, they feel really, really well developed. And I got fascinated by the secrecy, the obsession to the cause, the devotion to make everything as perfect as possible. It is perhaps an excellent observation in control. That's what this family wants, isn't it? They want to control every aspect of their lives. Absolutely. I mean, that. thank you. That's a phenomenal compliment. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a very astute observation. I mean, it's, I mean, the way I come about with my characters, I take, as we've said, you know, that premise of what if this person was murdered at this incredible wedding, and then I, I kind of reverse engineer it. So I, I start by thinking about what sort of people we need to have at this wedding. So I think about the roles that need filling. You know, we obviously we have the bride and groom, the best man, the the celebrant, the photographer, the caterers, all that stuff. And then you know you try and think about the bridesmaids and the the groomsmen. So I, I start with this kind of uh, this outline of the various roles that need filling, and then it becomes about okay, who are the people filling those roles? And again, it's all just it's just all about reverse engineering it. So I mean, I. I decided I wanted a, a wedding between an English person, well, someone from the UK and an Italian. I thought you need an Italian person there to ground it in the Lake Garda setting. But then I thought, let's have someone from the UK just so that, because I knew the book was going to be predominantly published in the UK. And I thought it'd be easier for people perhaps to get on board. And then you reverse engineer that and you think, well, okay, what sort of person from the UK is going to get married in Italy? And immediately you think, okay, you're probably going to be looking at someone quite wealthy. So yes, I'm, I'm really glad that they feel they feel well realized and you, you get a sense of them as people because I do occasionally worry about ultimately I'm I'm reverse engineering it as I say I'm thinking about okay what sort of people do I need for this scenario to happen for this crime to take place and you do sometimes feel a bit like you know are you creating people just to fill a role and you know I guess throughout the writing of the book and as you get to know them and you get to know the relationships between them and that you know where the interesting stuff is you try and flesh that out and make sure they don't just feel like people that you've come up with in order to to reach a certain scenario i mean i guess what you want is to is to feel like you're you're setting off at the beginning 
with no idea where the story's going to go and that it's unfolding naturally. And as I've just, you know, I've said that that isn't my process. My process is I kind of start with the end, which is someone is murdered at this wedding. And then I think about who do I need to have in play for this to happen? So yes, to, to hear you saying that they feel re realized and they feel natural. It's a supreme compliment. I'm very grateful for it. And I do like your, um, I like your observation that it's all about control because you're right it absolutely is i mean these these are a group of people who are used to to getting their own way and um and i think one of the core elements of the novel is one of our key characters is toby who is the the brother of the groom and he is rebelling against the family and he wants to he doesn't want to follow the path that's been laid out for him he wants to go off and do his own thing and he wants to set up a cocktail bar and the family are very much against that so yeah it's it's interesting theme i think is something that that comes at the end you know i just i write the best story i can the most entertaining story i can the best mystery that i can and then you get to the end and you realize oh actually this is a book about control systems and about you know people wanting to control each other and you don't you don't think of that stuff when you're on the watchtower looking down at the wedding or when you're thinking about god how do i mechanically how do i make this murder work it's um it's the sort of thing that comes at the end so i, I think it's a great observation i really like it well i read a lot of books and i also write and i'm a huge fan of this particular genre i've written in this genre and i felt in very safe assured hands because you did the one thing that i think all writers could do very well to to learn from which is you have lavished attention on your minor characters and i think that the book is infinitely more rounded more complete because of it i i thought about Toby, I loved Toby. Uh, and I think if I were a character in this book, I'd be a friend of Toby's, you know, maybe someone that drinks in his cocktail bar or something yeah. like that. But this notion of control is really interesting because also, as I said to you, every every single character in this book is in some way lying, either to themselves or to each other yeah. or both, you know, in, in certain circumstances. So there is a huge amount of deceit and deception that runs through this. and and I And I really, really like this. Now, the blurb that I got sent in the press pack has a couple of, I, I would guess, inevitable comparisons. So if you like this, you'll love this book. So, for example, you know, my press release talked about um, Agatha Christie, and I can kind of see that. Horowitz, Anthony Horowitz, I can certainly see. I, I have no idea whether you've read any of those, but I also had another comparison for you, which was that this feels very Patricia Highsmith. It feels like it feels like the talented Mr. Ripley could just walk onto this onto this stage <laughs> and be a part of this novel. That you know, the psychological component of the Haywood family and, and their obsession with control is really, really interesting. Perhaps even more so than the murder, because the murder is simply an offshoot of mm -hmm. that desire for control. But these are inevitable references. Are these writers that you grew up with that you that you love or or is that an accidental comparison that you've said said, all right, I'll go with it? I mean, Horowitz, certainly, you know, right. I um I've read so I'm 30. I mean, I've I mean it means I've read Anthony Horowitz for most of my life. I mean, right. the very first book I bought with my own pocket money was an Alex Ryder book. 
you know and uh, as i i think as i kind of got into my 20s that was when he started writing the hawthorne series and the magpie murders books and so yeah that is he he is a, a huge influence on what i did and as well i remember watching you know, i know he used to write poirot and midsummer murders and foils war i can remember watching all of those you know growing up as well so he is genuinely a, a huge influence i guess for christie funnily enough i came to later on so um I was aware of Agatha Christie, of course. I think everyone is. I think you know, stop anyone in the street here in the UK and ask what can you what can you tell me about Agatha Christie? And even if they'd never read one, I reckon they could tell you about a body in the library and poison and you know all that sort of stuff. So I was aware of Agatha Christie, but I didn't actually decide I need to. I, I should probably stop and read some of these things until I decided I was going to write my first book, A Fatal Crossing. So A Fatal Crossing started life as a play years ago, and it was going to be, it wasn't going to be a murder mystery. It was going to be more of like a heist, like a caper. So there's a thread in that book about a stolen painting, and it was all going to be about this stolen painting. And uh, I think when I decided I was going to have a go at it as a murder mystery instead, that was when I went out and I bought a stack of Agatha Christie's. But it was an interesting moment because, you know, as I say, growing up, I remember watching Midsummer Murders and I can remember even as a kid, like watching Scooby-Doo, you know, <laughs> and like reading the Harry Potter books, the first four of which are just whodunits. You know, I, it was it was an interesting moment reading. Those are the kind of stories I loved and reading a big stack of Agatha Christie's at the age of 24, 25. It was a bit of a light bulb moment. It was a bit of a oh, okay, this is where all this stuff that I've loved all my life has come from. So that was interesting. But as for the, the, the Highsmith comparison, that's not one I've had before. Um, so, and it, it, I mean, again, I'm aware it's a, it's a huge compliment. So, so thank you. But I mean, I guess, I mean, we talked a little bit, you know, you mentioned in your notes that it, it feels like a thriller almost. Mm -hmm. And I do occasionally see them described as thrillers. And I find that really interesting because for me, they are whodunits through and through. Like if someone asked me to describe you know, my books and you know the, the kind of stuff I write. I write murder mysteries, I write whodunits, but I guess I'm very conscious of, I, I, I try to make sure they're entertaining all the way through. You know, I, I don't ever want there to be a moment where it, it lulls or where you're having an interview of a suspect and um, it's all, it all feels very safe and sedentary. And I, I, I don't want that. I want there to be an element of danger all the way through. And I want, it to feel like at any moment someone else could be murdered. And even if you're just having a chat about, you know, where were you when the body was found? I want that to feel dangerous because I think entertainment comes from danger. And ultimately, you know, I, I, I see my books as escapism. That's why I, I want people to have a good time reading them. And so I want them, I want every page to be entertaining. I don't ever want there to be a moment where people are bored reading my books. And I wonder if that's maybe where the element of people describing it as a thriller comes from because i think as well something i'm very keen to do and the reason i get asked every now and then if i'm ever going to do a series and the reason i like doing standalones is it's so much easier to or one of the reasons i like them is that it's so much easier to personally invest the people who are solving the crime with the crime you know there are only so many times you can have someone solving the murder of you know a loved one or a friend or you know because i mean I, I toyed with the idea of our main protagonist in Murder in Lake Garda is a character called Robin. And I, I toyed briefly with the idea of bringing Robin back for book four because I really enjoyed writing her and I thought she was a great protagonist. But it just felt too tenuous to have her suddenly stumble on another murder, <laughs> of like yeah. ideally of someone she knows and that she can get invested in for her to try and solve. And I wonder if that that element of people being personally involved and not just solving a crime because it's their job, which is, I guess, is what a, a police detective would do, but solving it because 
it's someone they cared about who they've been murdered, who has been murdered, or they are in the firing line and people think they are the murderer or they worry they might be next. And I wonder if, you know, going to those lengths to to make sure that is the case in all of my books is maybe where the, the thriller comparisons come from. You know, I wonder if it's that, just that sense of heightened danger that perhaps you don't get in something like a Poirot, where, as I say, he's solving it because it's it's his job to go and solve things. So I really like Quentin Tarantino as a as a writer. I look up to him very much. And I remember him talking about stretching an elastic band. And, um, you know, he says, if you imagine like a scene as an elastic band, you want to stretch it and stretch it and stretch it and stretch it to the point that it cannot be stretched anymore for and it snaps. You don't ever want to slacken that elastic band. You want to keep stretching it and tightening it. And I remember hearing him talk about that in an interview years ago, and it has really stuck with me. And I try and think about that not only in the scenes I'm writing, but across the entire book, you know, I try to think about the entire novel as that elastic band that I'm constantly trying to stretch and never to kind of let go. And I, I wonder if that's where the, the thriller comparisons come from. Chapter two, people lie, facts don't. There is one beat that keeps occurring throughout this novel. People lie, facts don't. It's mentioned many times, and for me, it places the book firmly in the thriller camp. Because what we're seeing here is a study in observation of character, of personality, and what drives people. What are all these characters trying to run away from, or cover up? And how far are they prepared to go? The novel doesn't just paint its characters as horrible people who've always been horrible. It shows just how long it takes for the nastiness to seep through and to wash over every single crevice of your personality. The who-done-it was paid off beautifully, but the way the lives of the characters are so tightly constructed makes Murder on Lake Garda go so far beyond a who-done-it. It feels like a story decades in the making with the horribleness of people like Margot and Jeremy clearly having been built up over years. It has. Gosh, yeah, what an observation. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think you're right. They are horrific people. And uh, I guess I- I'm a big believer in the idea that we are sort of a product of, of where we come from and what we're grown up to believe, what we're sort of brought up to believe uh, and the experiences that we have. And, you know, as you say, no one, no one wakes up a horrible person. No one is born a horrible person. It, it, it It's something that sort of, that takes hold over time, I think. And I guess it comes back to what I was saying earlier about reverse engineering the characters and creating the characters I need for the murder to, uh, to play out. So I mean as I'm as I'm forming a better idea of what that murder is going to look like and what the motive might be, I and, and what the, the the sort of characters I need to have around this story for that to to work, you know, who they might be. I, I try really hard to go back and just think, okay, well what what are their lives like in in the years before this book? Where did they come from? What were their parents like? What were they brought up to believe? You know, and I, I think it's really important to to think about these things, even if, you know, you don't, like, we don't, we don't know anything about where Margot or Jeremy were born or, you know, where they grew up or what they were told as kids by their parents. But I think it's important for the author to, to think about this stuff, because if you don't and you just think, oh, well, this guy is, uh, 
is a horrible person because you know once when he was a kid someone was mean to him you know it's not that is i think that is how you get to dimensional characters i think it's about more than that i think it's about worldview and i think it's about formative experiences and i think it's about what you were told for years and years and years growing up as a kid and i i do try very hard to think about that stuff because as i say it might never be mentioned in the novel might never be referenced the reader might never see or hear it but i think you can feel it. You can feel that these are characters that have lived a life and that have come to opinions and expectations that are formed by a worldview rather than just because it's what the author needs them to think and feel for the novel to to play out. So I'm really glad it feels that way. Thank you. I think the the people lie, facts don't thing, that actually came, I don't know if I should be missing this, but that came as a means of, of covering myself more than anything else. Like I think I, I knew quite late on in the book that the the crime was ultimately going to be solved by working out who someone was lying about where they were at the time of the murder you know we work out when when the murder was committed and we you know the the, the way we solve this is by working out who is lying about where they were and i just thought it was so important to prepare people for that and to tee that up and just so that when it comes out that you know ultimately this is down to who is lying i didn't want people to think that they had been foxed or, or you know that they'd been lied to themselves so yeah that that was a mechanism more than anything else but i think you're right it, it does by happy accident it, it does say a lot about the characters in their book i think everyone is lying to someone as you say and i think again that comes from an idea of um of wanting these people to feel real i mean who among us can say that we are completely honest about absolutely everything all yeah. of the time whether to ourselves or to others i think it's about just doing your best to provide an accurate portrayal of of human nature and how we how we lie to ourselves and you know the lies we tell to to other people either to save face or because we think it's the kind of thing to do or you know i think it yeah so so that the, the people lie facts don't it was there as a mechanism but i'm glad it it is able to prompt some conversation on some larger themes that i think are definitely there in the book well let's stick with character because i was in a meeting this week actually about a script that I was commissioned to write. And there was a note that had come from one of the producers, which is, I, this scene isn't working for me. I don't think we need this backstory. And it was a fair note. And, and the reason this backstory was in, I, so I argued my case and I said, look, I said, we need, this character needs a single human moment. Otherwise she's just horrible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think we're better than that. I think that's a, that's a cliche. I think we can, you know, we need to give her, something and in the end we decided on okay well let's let her have a let, let her have a single moment of guilt about what she's doing and let's see that rather than have this brief backstory that i created and i was like fine let, let, let's do that i think the reason that i found myself being fascinated with the haywood clan is because everyone can see themselves in them they are a very extreme and manufactured version of reality but it's not too van- manufactured for people to People will recognize themselves in it because they are utterly convinced that what they're doing is the right thing. And that makes them human, first of all. But I also think that you look at them and and you feel as horrible as they are, you feel sympathy towards them because they're trapped in this lie, because they've convinced themselves that this is what they need to do. And you think, what must it be like to wake up like that every day, knowing that you have geared your entire life towards making this lie as much of a reality as you can because they they are literally living 
this lie day by day. And I found myself really attracted by them. I would love to be in a relationship with someone that was part of that family or associated with that family. I just love to go to a barbecue or a summer party and just observe it for myself. Cause I'm, I'm convinced I would come away and thinking, my God, you people really do believe this. You have drunk your own Kool-Aid, haven't you? And I found that absolutely fascinating. The fact that it happens to be in the middle of a whodunit, you know, that's simply the, the plot device that you've engineered for your book, which is great. Mm -hmm. But these people, and in a way, I always think, you know, where are they now? What's happened to them? You know, if we were to meet them again in 18 months, but in, in a way I kind of, I don't need to, I think, I think you're right. You could bring all of these people back or you could just leave the reader with, wow, I wonder what they're up. What, a, what an absolute, excuse my language, shit show of a family this really is. But I think you look at them and you go there, but for the grace of God, go we all, because we could all end up like that if we really drank our own Kool-Aid, couldn't we? We could. Gosh, I mean, this is, I mean, as you said earlier, this is why it's wonderful having these conversations, because these are, these are not the sort of things that I'm necessarily thinking about. They're, they're there, of course. You know, when I'm writing, I'm just thinking, let's get the best, cleverest, most entertaining murder mystery we have, I can. And then these things present themselves. I, you're right. I mean, they are, they are utterly convinced that they are right. And I think that comes from, in the moment of writing, from this idea of, everyone even a, a minor character a suspect in a murder mystery everyone is the hero of their own story everyone wants something everyone is striving for something and these people are are utterly convinced that they are doing the right thing i think you know we see that in the way they treat toby in how he wants to go and do something different i found that really appealing actually it's this idea so i'm really interested in the idea of legacy so let me you know i'd say most themes like control you know they and 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 lying to oneself you know these are things that make themselves clear once the story is is written and you're able to sit back and actually look at it and think about what you've what you've created but the, the i i'm really really interested in the idea of legacy and the idea of choosing whether to go down a path that's been laid out for you or or to go and do your own thing and this relationship or this difference between toby and lawrence the groom you know lawrence is utterly convinced that he it is his role in life to to sort of keep up this pretense of the hayward family and to do you know, to go into the family firm and to do very much what was expected of him at birth. Whereas Toby wants to go off and, and do his own thing and forge his own path. And neither of them are wrong. You know, neither, yeah. neither approach is wrong. But, you know, they butt heads endlessly throughout the book because they have these different desires of what they want to ultimately do. I mean, it's a plot point in the book that their their father died when they were both young. Lawrence is old enough as the older brother to remember their dad and to have had these conversations and to, you know, to have someone that he remembers and he wants to live up to and aspire to be like. Toby doesn't remember him. You know, Toby doesn't have that frame of reference. You know, it's just for him, he's a photo on the mantelpiece and a name and someone whose voice he can't even remember. So I think, you know, their, their desires to one of them to sort of follow in those footsteps and to go into the family firm and to follow this path that's been laid out for him and the other who wants to go and just do something completely different again it comes back to this idea of it's all about people's worldviews about yes. where they were born how they were brought up what they were told and Lawrence and Toby because their dad died you know when Toby was too young to remember they have these different worldviews despite you know coming from the same family the same place having the same expectations put on them and I just I so legacy and this choice of 
honoring someone's legacy not even honoring it but just you know trying to pick up where someone left off or going and doing your own thing both are honorable but i i find that choice because there's no right or wrong i find it a really really interesting choice and i really enjoyed exploring that in in the writing of the book chapter three one event two memories Whenever there's a sibling story in a novel, I always reflect on my own childhood and my relationship with my sister, and it's fascinating how often we realise that we have completely different understandings and memories of the same event. How can it be that one event that is so clearly fixed in my mind can be remembered by her in a completely different way? And there are real shades of this going on with the relationship between Toby and his brother Lawrence. Toby doesn't know his father, he can't remember and therefore can't hear his voice, so he's determined to go and do his own thing. And that's why I found Toby's arc so compelling. Because on one side, he just wants out of the family. He doesn't want to be a part of the Haywood clan. But on the other side, he finds himself being pulled back. He can't shake the Haywoods. It's part of his DNA. And despite his best efforts, the events of Lake Garda uncover the uncomfortable realisation that he may, in fact, actually be one of them after all. Well, I think he wants to be one of them, but on his own terms. You know, what he really ultimately wants is for them to accept that he wants to go and do his own thing. And that that's, that's not bad, that he's not a bad person for, for doing that. And I think what I find interesting about Lawrence is that, so Lawrence tries really hard to get Toby to change his mind and to come to work for the family firm. And, uh, you know, he goes to the, the lengths of trying to convince Robin, you know, help me, you know, say something to Toby. You know, he won't listen to me, but he might listen to you. Get him to give up this ridiculous idea of opening a bar and get him to come work with me instead. But that's, it's coming, they're both coming from a place of love, ultimately, not wanting to get, you know, so too too deep on a Wednesday morning. But like Lawrence is doing that because, because Toby is his younger brother and because he wants to look after him and because he genuinely feels that Toby is making the wrong decision and that it would be better for him if he comes and works for the family firm. What Toby ultimately wants is for Lawrence to just like accept that, you know, that he is going to go and do his own thing. And that that doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't want to be part of the family. He does want to be part of the family, as you say. And I think it was important to have we see it in the, the the kind of final chapters of the novel. Again, not getting spoilery, but there are a couple of moments between them where they don't they're unspoken, like it's kind of looks and it's it, it's actions. But there are moments where you you kind of see this. They they want to connect and they want to both be on the same page. And I think they really struggle with the idea that they don't and that they have these wildly different opinions. And I think they both have they both want to be part of this family, but they they have different opinions of what that family needs to be and of you know the terms on which they are part of that family. And yeah, that was something that I was aware of when I was writing it. And it was a really, really interesting thread to to explore and to, to kind of pull on. Well, it's, I mean, I, I said to you in my notes, it could just as well be the next Knives Out story. It's its really that good. I loved, you know, the majority of the book is told from, from the perspective of Robin, but then mm-hmm. occasionally you shift it for other characters to give them their perspective. So you have these competing narratives that just drive this story forward, which is which is just really well executed. But this is book number three for you, Tom. Um, just very briefly, plans for number four? Are you having a, a, a pen down moment for a while? No, I'm I've been editing it this morning actually. Yeah, book number four is 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 written and I've got two months now to to get my edits done and get it back to my editor. So it's another murder mystery, it's another contemporary one. 
I think it's location wise, it's going to be a very strange, uh, a strange and wonderful place again. Another reason I like doing these standalone mysteries is is the globe trotting that it allows me to do. <laughs> you know, setting it. I I really like the idea that people kind of know what they're in for with a Tom Hendel book, but also have no idea at the same time. You yeah. know, you you know you're in for another who done it somewhere, but you have no idea where. You have no idea what the premise is going to be or what the setup is going to be. You just know you're in for a a good old fashioned murder mystery. So there is another one on the way and there will be a fifth one after that, which I, I need to crack on with writing later this year. And again, the idea I have for that, another very different and very strange part of the world. So lots more to come. And thank you for the Knives Out comparison. That right there, that is the ultimate compliment. I am so envious of those films. Genuinely, I look at them. I look at Benoit Blanc. I think, God, what I would give one day to have a character like Benoit Blanc. And they're so clever as well. Like Ryan Johnson, you can tell the guy is a lifelong fan of these sort of stories because those mysteries are just so, so clever. And um, yeah, I I absolutely love the Knives Out films. So that is that's one heck of a compliment. Thank you. Well, if people do want a window into the magical world of Tom Hindle, they could do a lot worse than Murder on Lake Garda, which is out now. It's an absolute triumph. Tom Hindle, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Tom Hindle for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? If you want to keep tension in front of your mind in your writing, imagine your scenes as elastic bands. Don't let that band slacken. Stretch it and stretch it to the point it cannot be stretched anymore. Don't create two-dimensional characters. If your character is horrible, then give them a reason to be that way. Build up a sense of how their formative life experiences have shaped their worldview and figure out how to communicate that to both the audience or your reader. And finally, everyone is the hero of their own story. Characters can be living within a lie or a reality they created or were born into, but that doesn't change the fact they believe that what they're doing is right. Play on this to create compelling conflict between your characters. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. And new for Series 9, we're also on TikTok. Because why not? Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London titled On The Couch. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 